Dear Lord, we are so grateful that we can gather together as your people this day and reflect upon your great love for us. For that is why you've entered Jerusalem. And I pray that as we listen to these well-familiar texts that you would give us new ears to hear and eyes to see so that you would be glorified in our midst and transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. So therefore, Lord, take our minds and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It's not uncommon in our day in churches all over the world this day as we enter our churches joyfully saying Hosanna to the King of Kings, just as the crowd would have done in Jesus' day. The victorious Jesus, and we're grateful for it, but one of the great things and why I'm an Anglican Christian is right off the bat you heard as we entered the building that his throne is not a throne that he can sit on. His throne is a crown of thorns. But we like to keep him as the victorious Jesus, don't we? And if you look at this crowd in Jesus' day, it's really no different from the crowds that we have today. And I would ask, where are you in the crowd today? You have the followers of Jesus, the faithful followers of Jesus who've been with him, following him. They've come into Jerusalem from Bethany. Some were already in Jerusalem, but they knew he was coming, so they hailed him as the king. Then you had those who were just kind of swept up in the excitement of it all, you know? This is just something that we do. Oh, this is exciting. Oh, great, Messiah's come. He's here. He can throw the Romans out for us. In today's culture, well, I come on Palm Sunday because it's kind of the cool Sunday where I get to wave the palm and, and mom wants me to come anyway, so I come. Or the missus wants me to come. Well, then there's also the third category, which is the skeptics. Arms folded. Prove it to me. That's the religious establishment. And these were the ones who would stir up this crowd that was swept along the way on Palm Sunday. And four days later, that swept along the crowd. The crowd would be shouting, crucify him. You see, if we keep Jesus Christ victorious and on a donkey, you miss the whole point of his life and his ministry. Because it's while he's riding on the donkey, Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel record for us that he is weeping. Because he knows what he's come to accomplish. And so as we wrap up today our journey to the cross and we've heard Scott read for us the gospel, I think it's important for us to reflect upon the final hours of Jesus' life. We didn't read this, these texts, because, although we could have, but I think you would get hungry at lunchtime if we were still here. So we kept it just on the crucifixion, but... If you look at the lectionary, we could have read the Garden of Gethsemane. So I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 26. 
verse 36, in reflecting upon Jesus' final hours as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, he spent that time in prayer. It says in verse 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Jesus was regularly in prayer. We do not know often the content of these prayers, but in this case, in the final hours, Matthew records for us, it's with great sorrow. Verse 37, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then verse 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Throughout the Gospels, we never see Jesus in such distress as we do here in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have no other portrait of him during prayer like this. He fell on his face very sorrowful. What was the source of his sorrowful? Well, obviously it could be sorrow over the physical torture which he's about to endure and the pain and the death he was about to endure or, or was he sorrowful over the spiritual condition of his disciples who fell asleep after he asked them to pray with him or was he sorrowful about the one who would betray him or the others who would abandon him in a few hours at his greatest time of need Whatever the reason for his sorrow, Jesus' humanity is on full display for us. And we need to look at it. He did not want to walk the path that was unfolding before him. And he pleads with God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, Father. But yet not as I will, but your will be done. The way of suffering... In Latin, the Via Dolorosa unfolded before Jesus, and he would go to his death despite his prayers for another way. So as Christians, we move through this Holy Week and we meditate on this passionate prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His sorrow and suffering is on full display. We all this day, we're brought face to face with the stark contrast between his glorious entry into Jerusalem and the cross that is set before him. How easy it is to follow Jesus as the victorious one, but not as the one who suffers in our place. How often the pursuit is after the glory and grandeur of Palm Sunday as the entryway into the kingdom of God. But as author Kim Reisman says, that's not the Jesus way. She says, quote, God doesn't dispense with death. God resurrects us from death. The truth is that the Jesus way isn't about God taking pain away from God's people. It's about God providing us with strength, courage, and meaning with abundant life, often in the midst of pain. Even for those who do not share this Christian conviction might wonder 
at the very human portrait of Jesus' agonizing struggle with his own suffering. Brothers and sisters, friends, God knows our suffering. God knows what it's like to lose a loved one. Jesus Christ shows us here the God who takes on death and suffering will ultimately bring about resurrection. And those of us who wonder and long for God to reveal himself to us, we would do well to look at this scene in Gethsemane in Matthew. And remember, the God who reigns is not reigning from a throne, but from a cross. Now, the world doesn't like this view of the cross. It rejects this view of God. For example, the pioneer of daytime talk television, Phil Donahue, wrote in his autobiography. Most of you guys don't even know who Phil Donahue is. You know? He grew up in Cleveland, went to St. Ed's, fine Catholic boy, went to Notre Dame, go Irish, wrote in his autobiography about why he left the Christian faith. Quote, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, this is my Father whom I am well pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his Son to be murdered on a cross in order that he might redeem my sins? To which I would respond, if I knew enough in 1979, but I was 17. But Phil... Jesus claims equality with the Father, and that makes the Father a co-sharer in Jesus' suffering, does it not? He knows of sacrifice, pain, and love. Jesus says in John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus' claim to equality with the Father demands that we see two hearts with one heartbeat. This is a beautiful thought. And the next verse in John chapter 5 takes us into the inner workings of this oneness. When Jesus says, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The word loves there is not agape. It's phileo. It's the Greek word with the understanding that from a human level, we understand a personal love between friends who delight in sharing everything. Jesus is a separate person, and he has the power to act on his own, but by virtue of the love and his identity within the Godhead, he does no action that the Father does not also do. So in essence, John, as well as all the gospel writers, are saying, Jesus would say to us through them, you know all those Old Testament passages? They all point to me. I am the incarnation of that vision and much more. Those who were with Christ saw the Father. They saw the Father's smile. They saw the, heard the Father's teaching. They observed the Father's tender touch. And they trembled before his holiness and justice. 
in Jesus Christ, we see the likeness of God the Father. The colossal claim that Jesus sets before us this morning on Palm Sunday is that he is equal to the Father. Even if we've already embraced this truth, we must repeatedly affirm it. And that's what Palm Sunday is about for us. We must daily appropriate the reality that Jesus is God. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. That must be a constant reality in our lives. And we as believers must affirm who Jesus is. He is supreme. To unbelievers, he comes with the same claim. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And he will assert that for all time and eternity. This colossal claim continually confronts all mankind and it demands a response. A Christian is one who enjoys now a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through trusting him and his work upon the cross for each and every one of us that none of us can merit, none of us can earn. And this is one of the huge confusions of this day. I have yet to have anyone at the golf course or at Jake's when I ask them this question. What is religion? They always give me the same answer. They'll say the religion is a path you try to follow and you hope that when you get to the judgment day, you'll have done enough for God to accept you. To which I typically respond, well, that might be religion, but that's not Christianity. Christianity turns that all in its head. It's utterly revolutionary because it tells me that I can't make it that way. I can't earn God's forgiveness, but God has done something upon the cross in Jesus Christ for me that he offers to me forgiveness in, by his sheer grace and a relationship with him that gives me abundant life by surrendering all my life to him. I cannot merit God's favor. You know, we live in a merit-based society. You go to a university, you have the opportunity to earn a degree, but you don't earn that degree until you work at it. You, it depends all upon your merit. Job promotions are the same thing. Everywhere we go, it's merit. But we think we can merit God and enter a relationship with him. Why? How does that work? How does that work in marriage? For example, I met this beautiful cross-country runner in high school. I was 18. She was 16. I fell absolutely head over in heels. Two and a half, three years later, I think this woman would make a great wife. So, imagine, I go buy a cookbook, and I go up to her and I say to her, Kimmy, I love you, but this cookbook has all the laws and how to make me a killer red beans and rice with cornbread recipe. Now, if you do that, 99, 90, we'll, we'll give you the Fairfax County grading scale, 94% of the time to 100 then I'll accept you, and you can be my wife for the next 50 years. All right? If you're not, you can go back to your parents. 
why are you laughing? That's exactly the way people treat God. Exactly. You say, well, I hope I'm good enough for salvation. Well, you just put it on your works and your merit. And God offers this as a free gift of grace to you. Why would you want to work for it? You wouldn't insult any other human being that way. Why do you do that with the one person in the world who's eternal, who always has been, and loves you with an everlasting love and underneath are the everlasting arms? Why? You tell them that your acceptance depends upon their performance, but that's exactly what you do when you, with your relationship with God. No, my friends. It is by his offer of sheer grace that by trusting Jesus' work upon the cross, you have life eternal and life abundant in the present. What crowd are you in? Are you part of the faithful followers? What a great day. It's, it's, a, it's a hard day. When you, every time I hear one of the gospel readings of the cross, it just churns my heart what our Lord did for us. And I cheapen it. Let's not cheapen his grace today. Let's follow him with wholehearted devotion. Maybe you're one of those who got swept up in the crowd and you got dragged here today. Or your friends are here. Or your wife told you you need to come. Or your husband told you you need to come. Or maybe you just like my, my stories. <laughs> Whatever the reason. What does God's love mean to you? We see the yard signs, love is love. Right? That's the world's phrase, not God's phrase. God is love. How do you know that? What is it? It's Jesus Christ on the cross for you. Surrender to him. And if you're one of the skeptical arms folded crowd this morning, I'm so glad you're here. This is God on the cross for you. This is the one Savior of the world who came for you. God incarnate. And you can turn to this crucified Savior and have eternal life. Let's close in prayer and ask the Lord to do just that for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are grateful that you come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we heard that work today. And as you entered Jerusalem, Lord Jesus, you wept because you so wanted Jerusalem to turn and they wouldn't. Yet, Lord, many of us do turn to you this day. We recognize that before you, we are rebels. We want to run our lives our own way. And so, Lord, we turn to you and we confess that we are sinners. And we want forgiveness for all of our sin. And we surrender all of our lives. And we believe that you, Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross on our behalf. And as we turn to you, Lord, we pray you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. As we give you our lives to do with as you wish. And as we do so, Lord, you would not only fill us, but fill us to the full Holy Spirit. 
and that we would be yours forevermore. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.